All right. Uh, well, this morning we're going to continue our series, uh, walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one, there should be one in the seat in front of you or close by. I don't want to say seat in front of you because I've seen people have to kind of do like the awkward reach across the aisle or something, but there'll be a Bible close by. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians. This morning we're going to be going... Uh, Verse chapter 1, verse 18 through 2-5. Um, and that might bring a question up. Why aren't you stopping at the end of the chapter like Paul wrote it? But he did not write in chapters. There weren't even verses when the Bible was like originally written. And so um, that was done later. So if you've ever been confused, like this seems like an awkward place to end a chapter. Uh, you're probably reading it really well. So good job. Um, but so we're going to move through uh, his kind of thought pattern. Um, let me pray and read the passage, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word, uh, that you have preserved it uh, for th thousands of years. Um, God, that we could read it this morning, that you are still speaking to us through it strongly, um, just like you did through the prophets, God that we read about earlier. Um, Lord, open our hearts, soften our hearts, help us hear you this morning. Pray to these ends and, and by your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so I'll read the passage and then we will dive right in. Verse 18, chapter one. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as is it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right, so do I want you guys to think back to the first time in your life when you experienced your first major disappointment, major huge letdown. And if you can't think of it right away, I know what it is actually for everyone. So there's a couple things that I get with a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and it's a kind of recollect memories of when I was a kid, some good, some bad that I've tried to repress over all these years, but I have been reminded of the first major letdown of my childhood so after going to like an arcade or something, spending all your hard-earned tokens and watching my son go through this, you, you use your tokens, you get tickets, and you get home, and you know what you're getting. You're getting this amazing flying machine wrapped up in thin paper, the styrofoam plane. You guys remember the styrofoam plane, the one that you'd stick the little plastic piece on and there was this thin, tiny line in the middle that you'd try to squeeze the styrofoam wing onto and if you were lucky enough to not snap it before you got the wing in there, then you'd have to put that plastic piece on the end. Again, you'd probably broke it. There's that little spinny propeller and then you'd get ready, right? You'd get home, you'd get ready and it was this Thing, it probably made claims that it would fly across football fields and you turn, getting ready, probably what the Wright brothers were feeling right before they had their first flight, getting ready to throw it across the room and if it didn't hit a couch or immediately flip and land onto the ground, it went about 10 feet until it bumped into a wall and crumpled like the paper it had come in and you're devastated, Right? Watching Shook go through that, I remember being so excited when I was little to get this plane. It was, my dad was a pilot, so I was like, this is just like what he's doing. <laughs> and then getting it out and realize, starting to realize for the first time, like, that thing is a lie. You get maybe three flights and you are in a small percentage of humanity who where has seen that thing survive. And, but as a little kid, you were so wrapped up in the promise that it was gonna be this awesome plane. And then you realize, and, and even here, I'm like, of course it's cheap. Like it's, it's made of like the thinnest styrofoam you could possibly imagine. And like the durability, everything that you were promised, you're let down, the rugs pulled out from you. And all of these things you're kind of hoping in as a little kid are just taken back. And so you're probably wondering, like, what does this possibly have to do with 1 Corinthians? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul, again, is trying to explain to the Corinthian church that what they are putting all of their weight in, all of their hope in, is incredibly fragile. What they believe to be the thing that is most important to pursue Right? They might even not articulate it. They might say, oh, well, of course, Jesus, that's where I put my hope. But in reality, they were placing all their trust and all their chips into something that was incredibly fragile. And it goes back to kind of what we've seen time and time again. And we talked about it last week with Apollos. 
We're talking about speaking with words of eloquent wisdom. And, and so if we go back one verse from the section this morning to verse 17 of chapter 1, we get a little clue into where he's going this morning. So Paul says in verse 17, says, I was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so, especially with the next verse, the word of the cross is folly, or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so he, he's bringing out this distinction. Somehow, wisdom robs the cross of its power, or eloquence, and, and, and somehow the, the power of God, it seems like foolishness to the culture, and so, so we need to kind of draw that out. Um, and so wisdom is used a ton here uh, throughout this, wisdom and foolishness throughout this section. And so if you remember uh, a month or two ago, Jeremy was talking a lot about wisdom in Ecclesiastes. That's one of the wisdom literatures. And so he talked about it a lot of how it was kind of like a, like a highway guardrail. Right? It wasn't just, you have to do everything this way. There was a ton of gray, and, and we remember how it really you're almost frustrated that you don't get the answer. Well, that's not what wisdom is supposed to do. It's supposed to be a guardrail that just keeps pushing you toward God, right? toward life. Not something that just says, you got to do this, you got to do that. In this situation, oh, only do this. And that, that's why it's, it's kind of hard to define. Well, even in our culture, like if you think wisdom... We might think of it in a different way. It might mean like knowing what to do at the right time. It's not just intellect. It's not just smarts. It's not just the answers. Um, and so just like with all words, they have different meanings at different times. They take on different impacts. In Corinth, in that first century culture, wisdom meant something much, much different. So it didn't take away intelligence, but wisdom was power. Wisdom, when you said, oh, you're, you're someone of great wisdom, you weren't just saying you're a wise person like we might think of it. You were saying you are someone of power. You are someone of status. Wisdom was the kind of cultural currency where socially people would rise up the ranks. If you could attach yourself to someone who is wise and eloquent and they were a good speaker and orator, oh my gosh, you've just, you, you're in an entourage now. It's not just you know someone who's good to ask advice to. It was you would climb up the ranks with their status. It's kind of like celebrities uh, or like, you know, f famous musicians or entertainers or professional sports stars. Like, oh, they're, they're good at something. Well, they're famous. It's not just that people know them. There's they're status and power and relevancy that comes with just them being good at something. Same with wisdom here. And so just listen to a couple of the examples. It has, uh, in verse 18, uh, the message of the cross is folly. Uh, and then he says power. Um, where is the one who's wise? Where is the debater? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know through wisdom. Uh, and then later down in two, Paul says, and I came to you in weakness, not in eloquent wisdom, uh, not with words plausible, words of wisdom that were plausible. Um, 
peppering it all through this section, trying to draw out the distinction of what does God mean compared to the wisdom that they are so obsessed with right now and the power, and those things are almost synonymous. And so thinking of, especially verse 18, well, why was the message of the cross foolishness? Well, it's because it lost status. Someone, someone who didn't expose how powerful they were, who didn't, uh, didn't shine this impressiveness when they carried themselves, your God let himself be killed? That's weakness. That's not impressive. So you're irrelevant. But, but God doesn't need relevance. Not from culture, not from us. You can almost say one of the characteristics of God is that he is self-relevant just because he is who he is. He doesn't need his creation to determine his value or his status. And so that's kind of that verse 20. Paul writes, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And it, it, of course, it's this rhetorical question. It's like, they're nowhere. One of my favorite movie scenes is, and it's a, one of my favorite gifts that I could ever use, is in Gladiator, when he stands around, he's like, are you not entertained? Y'all remember that scene? And then he like whips a sword up at the emperor or something like that. That's, that is exactly what Paul is doing right here. Where are they? Where's the debater? If you are so wise, if you are so smart, if you are so powerful, where are you? And the answer is they are not standing. They are not here. And that's why he says, has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Kind of like, isn't that obvious? Haven't you, haven't you run out of, of the wisdom and the power that you're all trying to attain? And that's why so many people loved Apollos because he was a great orator. In Acts 18, it talks about how he was a man of eloquent wisdom. And that doesn't mean that he was just really smart. It means that he could speak really intelligently. Um, arguing things publicly was kind of like the entertainment of the day or sports today or something like that. It was something that everybody gathered together in the square to watch. And if you could really dismantle your opponents in kind of a debate style, oh, you were, you were a king. And so Apollos was just really good at that. Um, and that's not to suggest that he tried to gain those followers and pull people away from Paul, but because he was good at it, that caused a group to faction um, like we talked about last week. Uh, but so Paul is trying to let them know that all of these things that they are pursuing in wisdom and power, eventually the rug's gonna get pulled out from under them. That that foundation, the status building thing that they're seeking is fragile. And so he does this in three kind of categorical ways through the rest of the letter. First, he talks about biblically, like the history of how God has shown that the world, the way of the world, the world's power, the world's wisdom is really kind of foolishness. And what you think to be powerful, that, well, sure, it seems foolish to the world, but that's how God shows his power, his salvation, his strength, his wisdom. And then he goes into broad kind of cultural categories and then he brings it down to the individual. And so those are, we'll just kind of hop to those things. So first in verse 21, it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know 
God through wisdom. That's basically saying from the beginning of this whole story, it hasn't been something that your wisdom has attained. It's been God's initiative. And and so just think through, like zoom out, think through the story of the Bible and, and God planning out this story, who he's involving, what characteristics they kind of exude. So it's like, all right, Abraham, Father Abraham, we're gonna take a super old couple, his wife's gonna be barren, and I'm gonna put all the weight into them having a son. Oh, by the way, he'll kind of get into some mess with one of his servants, uh, but no, he'll be the father of this whole thing. He'll be the foundation of the whole story. And then later, Moses, a kid who was abandoned by his mother because he was about to get killed, grew up in Pharaoh's temple kind of as a foreigner, would have sort of been a traitor to his people, but he also murdered a guy, ran away into the wilderness, had a stuttering problem. Yep, he's the one I want to lead my people who are enslaved to one of the strongest nations and armies in the entire world. I'm gonna have him carried out. Oh, okay, well, Moses, yeah, Uh, Your time has ended. You're not gonna make it to this promised land I gave my people. I'm gonna get Joshua to take them in. There's a massive fortress. What should we do, God? Trumpets. That'll scare. Okay, all right, right. moving moving around. Okay, what about David, right? I know the women are going through David. They just got through the point where David was chosen. Okay, brothers, line up. No, I want the smallest one. Does he write poetry? Okay, yeah, that's my king, yep. Oh, oh, by the way, your great-grandmother is going to be uh, ethnically one of the most hated people groups of all the people of Israel And, and a refugee. That sounds like power, right? And then, oh yeah, David, your son, Uh, You have too much blood on your hands. I don't want you to build my temple. I want you to leave a ton of money to your son that eventually he'll squander and split my whole kingdom in half. That would be wonderful, right? You start seeing where, oh yeah, by the way, David murdered a guy and took advantage of a young woman. Like where is the wisdom and power and status and value with all these major characters? And that's not even thinking of, okay, well, you know that temple that I had built? It's gonna be wiped out because I'm gonna get this nation to come in and exile the people. And then I'm gonna use another government to bring the people back and protect them while they rebuild the temple and the wall. And then that government's gonna be overthrown, which eventually I'll have my Messiah born in. And then he's going to die horribly as an enemy of the state of that government uh, while the people he came to rejected him. And his closest group is gonna be filled with a resume of people like fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors who are really just people who betray their own people to make money based on the government that ended up killing the Messiah. Like if you're trying to come up with a storyline that exudes strength and power and wisdom and might and status, do not read the Bible. Verse 21 In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The whole story does not fit our narrative of the world. But one thing you can be sure of, it pleased God through all of that foolishness to save those who believe in him. 
That's one thing you can bank on because the rest of it doesn't make any worldly sense. Okay, so what about culturally? Like for them, right at that time, culturally, Paul talks about two groups, Jews, Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks. And, and I think we can kind of see some similarities with us today. He says, uh, in verse 22, he says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And so what, what were those issues that they were, you know, Jews seek signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Well, so it, maybe you remember in the gospel of John, he brings us out a lot where signs and wonders were used a, a ton. And even there's this scene after Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish and all these people are following him. He turns to him and he's like, y'all are looking for signs. And even some of the Jewish leaders, they ask for a sign, prove, prove it, prove it, prove it. He said, you just are looking for miracles. You're looking for things that I can do for you. You're not looking for me. And that's when he gets into like, you're gonna eat my flesh and drink my blood and the people kind of freak out and walk away. But that's all they were looking. They, They were looking for proof. They wanted power. They wanted to see you do something, Jesus, or do something, Paul, or do something that would prove to us that you really are God, that you're really strong, that you're really mighty. And we fall into that trap, I think, when we, oh, should I, I don't know if this person's the right person or if this job is the right job or what I should do here. Should I move? Should I stay? If God could just give me a sign. Like, have y'all ever done that before? If God would just show me, if God could just prove that he's with me on this, or if I had some confirmation and we're like, Okay, God, if I could just have your right, we think that if we got this sign or this, this, I mean, I don't even know what they are, like sky riding or some strange like woman in rags comes to you at the grocery store and tells you the one word you needed to hear that you were thinking, Chicago, what? Like, you know, that, but that's not what happens. It's not, it's, it's rarely what happens in the Bible, but that's not, we're not looking for faith. We're looking for proof. And so it's not wrong to look for confirmation. Don't hear that. But it's sort of what we're looking, if God could prove himself, then I'll follow him. And no, we wouldn't. And then Greeks, they want wisdom. They want something to make sense. They, they need it to be over and against all the other uh, information and to be logically locked in. And we fall into that when we're like, you know, if I could just have all my questions answered, then I'd become a Christian or then I'd get over this little hump that's keeping me from really kind of entering into the community or, or being vulnerable around this person. If I had every single answer and every theological thing to, to know that this was right and that it was provable and right. So there's nothing wrong with having reasons of why we believe what we believe, but the Greeks held it as the most important thing. If I have all the answers, if it is perfectly, eloquently lined out and nothing can beat it, there is no doubt, and I'm fully convinced, then I'll come. And we don't do that either. And so Paul's saying that's why it's a stumbling block. The Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come in with power and might and be that great king politically that would wipe out the Roman government and finally lead them into the maybe back to the promised land and they'd finally have this new Jerusalem of a massive kingdom that would never end. And when they saw him get crucified and be a servant and be born in a poor area to no one, 
that can't be him. It doesn't fit into our system. Or when the Greeks, you start thinking about it, hey, you know, I'm Paul, I'm coming into Corinth in this incredible Greek culture, and I'm talking to them about a God who is a servant, a God who didn't open his mouth at the most important time when he could have argued and and spun his way into going free and being innocent, and he wasn't eloquent. He He didn't take this kind of air of superiority. Well, that can't be it. That's not the Messiah. That's That's not a God worth following. He's not much of anything. That's, that's, it didn't fit their systems. And then verse 24, it says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is, there's kind of like a parenthetical is, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the differentiating factor is God calling them, reaching out. It didn't matter their ethnicity. It didn't matter what they thought. It didn't matter what culture they, come from, they came from, what kind of cultural value they held highest. It was, is God, God is initiating. Have they responded? Have they said, yes, okay, but the, I can see now. God's revealed that, that it is the power and the wisdom of God and that what I was going after is not worth putting my faith in. And then Paul turns individual, right? He goes, for consider your calling, brothers, or brothers and sisters. Consider y'all's calling is what he's saying. And many times in scripture, I will not tell you this, but right here, you can think me. Think about your testimony is what Paul is saying. Think about where you were, Think about what your life was before Christ came and got you. Think about who you were, what what your status was. Did you climb to the top of a mountain and then you found God or did he come get you? And I know the answer to that, even without knowing all of your intimate stories. He says to them, not many were powerful, not many of you were wise, You weren't of noble birth. It was not impressive for God to save you. And and there's an inkling of kind of offense, like, wait a minute. Are you saying that I'm like nothing? Yes. Not that you don't matter, but like, unless I'm wrong, not a single one of us in here is famous of high acclaim, is special, especially when Christ came and got us. And if you become famous, great. But to their system, it would have only made sense if God saved the kings and the magistrates and the best speakers. I could even see someone there struggling with like, well, I can tell why Apollos clearly is being used by God. But me? I'm a nobody. The world isn't dependent on me. The culture isn't dependent on me. Why would God save me? It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I mean, that that is a glorious sentence. 
once you reach the humility of realizing, I'm not bringing anything to the table, you can say, praise God like that he did come and get me. That ought to make Christians be the most humble people in the entire world. I, I hope that characterizes you. I hope that characterizes this church. I know probably culturally that doesn't characterize the American church. And, you know, we can kind of separate that out. But when I think, it, it would be kind of like thinking of uh, Islam or Muslims and being like, well, they're just known as really not very disciplined people. Right? Everyone knows that Muslims are really disciplined and devout, right? Those are almost synonymous. Christians, it should be humble. It should be humility because we realize that we weren't something when Christ came and got us. And actually that power, it's, it's flourishing through us when we don't make ourselves something. The more we make ourselves nothing actually is where we gain power and wisdom, which again, it didn't make sense to the Corinthian system. Paul knew this about himself. So probably my favorite Bible verse is uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul is writing again to the Corinthians. And here's how you can tell that it was like a real big issue in the church if like years later he wrote about it again to them. But Paul's talking about this ailment that he had and he's wondering if he can continue. And then kind of Jesus kind of interrupts in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. It says, therefore, I will boast. This is Paul thinking, writing. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so there's kind of a way that we get sidetracked with that statement. We think, okay, well, and later, if you know that, you know, there's this little phrase that says, when I'm, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And we think, okay, if I'm weak, then I'm strong. So if, if bad things happen to me, if I go through uh, some kind of turmoil in my life, or if, if I'm made foolish because I'm following God, if I'm embarrassed, anything like that, then really I'm strong. So the way to get strength is to, and, and we're still thinking of how do we get something? And it's really tricky. I get into this. What this is saying is when we are strong, when we see Christ's power rest on us, is when we are found in weakness and Christ receives glory from that. Not we are seen as strong. Christ's power comes through, shining through, through us. And so you can even think about points in your life where you may be struggling and you're thinking, you know what, I can, I can lose. I can be weak so that Christ receives glory and honor. We get trapped in this. But Paul kind of applies this to the situation. He doesn't just go through the kind of broad biblical, cultural, and individual for you. He says, remember Remember when I came to you? I didn't come speaking in eloquent wisdom and I came in fear and trembling and weakness. I knew, Corinthians, that this would be tough for you. 
I knew that you would like me. You would, I, if I spoke in a way that was popular to the Greek culture, you would love it and cling on to me and it would rob Christ of that glory because you would give it to me. And this is one of the hardest passages for me to think through because that is a huge temptation for me right now to try to say things that would have you guys really like me, really give glory to me and not for it to bring glory to Christ. And so I need your help, congregation, to look out so that I do not do that. And it doesn't mean I can't speak intelligibly, I can't, but if I'm trying to produce an eloquence that would raise my status or build followers and not do it so that God would receive glory and that it would point you to him. You need to call me out for that. And so one kind of challenge and exhortation that I want us to take away um, and then we can head out is stop trying to be so strong. I could say try to be weak but I think there's so much in our culture that is telling us we need to be better, smarter, faster, more intelligent, more tech savvy, stronger. And I think, I think y'all get what this means. It doesn't mean not be better or not be physically stronger, not pursue excellence, but the kind of strength that builds our value and builds our status Stop trying to be so strong. We, we do this at work, right? We wanna, e- even being late, we wanna make sure that we might have, we have a really good excuse because Christians shouldn't ever make mistakes in the workplace. We wanna be a good witness and we, we, anything that maybe you might have to apologize to someone for at work in a setting where maybe there aren't a lot of Christians, you feel this weight, you're like, ah, oh, Christians shouldn't do that. Well, maybe they should, It's okay to fail because you're not going for your own status and reputation and strength. You're trying to glorify Jesus and he may be glorified through you failing or through you apologizing or through you admitting you made a mistake and asking someone for forgiveness way more than your perceived strength and perfection and wisdom. I mean, we do this in our families. We hide these things that we don't really want people to know about. We do this in friends when it's like, I may, I may have an issue with this, but I, I wanna maintain kind of my reputation. I wanna maintain my status and my value, and I don't wanna do anything that might threaten that, so I'm just gonna pretend like everything's okay. Stop trying to be so strong. If we admit that we're not okay, and mentioning this in the membership class, like it, a community where we can all walk in here and not be okay and not be strong and be foolish and be weak and not gain our value and our status through how we appear, whether that's in knowledge or physical appearance or just emotional, I'm not doing okay today. That kind of community will absolutely change the world. You think anyone out here who is not a Christian could walk into this church, notice that there is a people who are totally fine showing the worst weakness and failure among each other and all of them use that to glorify God more and are grateful for one another more because even when we fail on our worst days, we're saying, well, praise God 
that he loves us and it's okay to take your mask off. That should be a church community that is founded in the grace and power of the cross. Stop trying to be so strong. And so one thing I wanna leave you guys with is verse five. And right before there, Paul says, I didn't wanna know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I need to give you the pure essence of what this is about, that Christ lowering himself, dying for us to reconcile us all to him to get far more than all this power and wisdom and everything else and status and value could attain for ourselves in the way that we pursue it. I don't want to go through all of that. I just want to tell you the gospel. It says, so that, and I'll just leave us with this. Just think about what that would mean if you could actually understand this verse for yourself today, tonight when you put your head on the pillow. So that, verse five, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would drive this into our hearts that we don't need to be so strong that your power is made perfect in weakness. God, we are made to worship and glorify you and to point ourselves, our friends, our family, the entire world, that we are made to point them to you and your cross. And it doesn't make sense, God. It doesn't make sense practically here this morning in our systems. It doesn't make sense to the culture, but I pray that you would work powerfully through us. Reveal these things to us so that we can be a community that puts our faith in your power and your wisdom and not in the wisdom of man. We love you, Lord Jesus. Continue to work in our hearts. Amen.